1: And welcome to The Brief, a short, sharp snapshot of a big policy issue. I'm Edwina Landale. Today's podcast marks a sad moment in time. The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, passed away on Thursday the 16th of August from advanced pancreatic cancer. Her music helped shape change, not just by connecting people to beauty, but also by carrying a message of human dignity. Her 1967 song, Respect, was a plea for recognition, coming to define both the feminist and civil rights movements in the U.S. Her passionate embodiment of black and female experience in the patriarchal white America of the 60s made her an icon for revolutionary movements. This episode of The Brief is going to look at the power of music as an instrument for political expression. How has protest shaped political movements and how can it change policy? Why does music affect us so powerfully? How has the political voice of music changed since Aretha Franklin inadvertently recorded one of the most important Vietnam war songs, Chain of Fools? We are joined today by Professor Kim Cuneo from the ANU School of Music. Kim is a senior lecturer in composition and convener of musicology at the school. His research focuses upon composition, performance and ethnomusicology, and his music has been played around the world, including performances at the White House, United Nations NGOs and festivals in a number of countries. As an expert at bridging the gulf between the arts and the social sciences, Kim is here to discuss the interplay between music and policy. Thank you for joining us today, Kim.
0: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: My boss is obsessed with Woody Guthrie and Billy Bragg. He says that in the midst of Thatcher's Britain, they woke him up to the impact of policy on human lives and seemed incredibly sad to hear that I'm not a huge fan of either. On the other hand, I think it's tragic that he's never listened to the album All-American Badass because it somehow manages to convey the huge impact of Trump's presidency upon black America. How is it that music is able to connect us so strongly to politics and policy?
0: I think it's because musicians have a role in society without even knowing it sometimes and that role is really to be the canaries in the coal mine. If we think of it, musicians and really all artists, whether they like it or not, they're a little bit on the outside of the mainstream. And as soon as you're on the outside, you get to look at things in another light. Not only that, musicians don't make a lot of money, so they don't have the vested interest in losing what other people can lose by speaking plain truth. So I think these are the the two reasons why musicians can do it. But then there's something more. Some musicians seem to have this inherent ability to not only see what it is, but to say that my role will be to change things. And, you know, all the examples we've just heard are, are wonderful. And this has been going on really since the, the dawn of history. Now, some musicians, we might not even think of being like this, but they really were. And I'd like to start with a little example of uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who we think of as a sweet classical composer now. Maybe we've read some of those books that talk about how, you know, listening to Mozart makes your brain fire well, and that's the sort of mainstream idea of it. But Mozart was incredibly politically aware, and we can learn a lot by thinking that musicians have always done this. For example, La de di Figaro, his work with uh, the librettist de Ponte, that was a play that was actually banned in most of Europe for being so, so against the grain for saying this radical thing this radical tenet of the enlightenment that all people are essentially equal no matter what their birth. And so this has been going on for hundreds of years and right now I think we look to music for leadership. We feel that musicians can say things that all of us feel but they can condense difficult subjects into something easy to follow. So that's why music connects us because we're looking for it to happen.
1: Even in the last century, many musical genres have been characterised by exactly the political orientation that you were just talking about. Jazz music was at the heart of the civil rights movement in America, punk music is characteristically anti-establishment, and hip-hop is interwoven with the story of race politics. So given all of these examples, do you think that music is inherently political?
0: That's such a good question. I'd, I'd like to have an each-way bet, if I can use a terrible analogy. And the reason why I want to have that is, of course it is. Whether we like it or not, music is of a time of place. So if I, if I live in a dominant society and I'm making music in that dominant society, even if it's bubble bu- bubblegum pop, I'm a part of that dominant society. And anyone who examines that is going to see the inherent politics in it. But the reality is musicians have always been able to do that. Those things that you've just discussed so well, they've been able to say... I don't like this about some aspect of society or politics. And I'm going to throw my hat in and change things if I can. And I think we're in an exciting time because, as we know, we we hear so much about Trump's America. But it's a time for artists and for musicians of great renewal because suddenly there's something to really say. And I think this is a very exciting thing, that when things get a little bit hard, musicians often stand up and they're counted.
1: And whether it's conscious or not, do you think that these political messages are translated into actual policy changes?
0: Of course, sometimes we can feel that there's a piece of music that is is a part of a social movement and You know, I'm thinking of that great song, Strange Fruit, which is that disgraceful act of hanging black Americans. And when you hear Billie Holiday sing that song, you can feel the suffering of a whole nation of people. And we can feel that things had to change. And maybe they would have changed without that piece of music. But the piece of music helped to enable it. So I think that many times it does actually have policy change. And sometimes what it does is it just enables the conversation to happen on a deeper level that then makes it okay for the people who are looking to policy to say the social fabric of this country has changed. And that's how I think it really happens. It's not that we say this song changed everything, but this song or this piece of artwork, it enabled people to to think about things in a different way. And then eventually the people who run the country or any country are forced to take notice.
1: So you're you're talking about music as an enabler for change. And I mentioned earlier Aretha Franklin's Vietnam War song, Chain of Fools. Mm. So the Vietnam War songs are a great example of music shaping public attitudes towards policy and mobilising society in a demand for change. So looking at current musical culture, uh, what types of music do you think lend themselves to this kind of political expression or have the most power to mobilise society?
0: That's a really great question to think, you know, what music does this best right now? I think all musics have the same potential, but some... Some artists in some styles really do a great job. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, because I I also work in classical music, and I think that contemporary classical music has an incredible power in it. And the reason is simple, that the elites of society, sometimes for no real love of music, often see this music because it's, you know, there could be a symphonic program that basically has, you know, old sort of dead music, and then there's one new piece to sort of freshen up the program. And that's a great opportunity for a composer or performer to reach people. So classical music can do it. Often it doesn't but it can. Jazz is the place I think where things reside well because jazz musicians they've they've always been able to see the nature of the world I think. And jazz has a such a strong sense of counterculturalism. Even a white student at our school of music here in Canberra who's learning jazz inevitably they connect to the fact that this is a social movement and this is a movement that is bringing about change. That was made by black people for black people to enable them to sort of move beyond the ghetto that they were stuck in. So I think jazz is doing it really well. But the thing is, hip hop, hip hop is an altogether political movement. And we have to say, even if we don't like the music, something remarkable happens in hip hop because hip hop is both poetry and music. So it's the opportunity for people to improvise their immediate dissatisfaction with the world and think of something better and i think of that seminal work uh, grandmaster flash don't push me because i'm close to the edge i'm trying not to lose my head it's like a jungle sometimes i think i wonder how i keep from going under that was the anthem of a generation of black americans and if i play it to my students now they still know the message and they still say this job isn't finished yet we have to play our part
1: a lot of the artists that I've mentioned and that we've been talking about, they convey their message with words, and that's how they translate their meaning. But the use of lyrics isn't something that you actually engage with that much as a composer of, as you say, classical work. So how do you convey meaning and communicate social issues without language?
0: You know, when I was a music student quite a long time ago, it was not that long after the 8th of the 8th, 1988, which is, you know, it's a very interesting time. But it was the time of the great political unrest in Burma, Myanmar, where the National League of Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, actually decided to mobilize the entire country against the military junta. And what happened was this coalition of monks and workers and teachers and students all basically marching for political freedom. And they they spoke a chant called Doye Doye, freedom, freedom. What I did was actually... I transcribed the rhythms. Of, someone actually recorded the sounds of these demonstrations on their Walkman and posted it to me from Burma. And I transcribed those sounds and put them into an orchestra. And once people were able to read on their program notes that these were the actual sounds that had happened on the streets of Rangoon, they were deeply affected. For example, we built a new instrument, a percussion instrument, a giant sheet of metal. And when that was played, we were able to directly play the transcriptions of machine gun fire as it was firing on the Burmese students. And so I think music can do these things literally really, really well. But sometimes music can just move us. And now I'd like to think of a completely different piece. It's the Ludovico Enaldi piece that he did with Greenpeace, the, the Requiem for the Arctic. And this is an astounding piece. This is basically a man taking a grand piano onto a piece of ice that is broken away from the main part of ice, and playing a really beautiful, sweet piece of music, and the image and the sound together tell the story, there's no need for anything else, because we're smart enough to know that this is about climate change. And so I think music can do it on a more subtle level, with great, great poise and power.
1: The project that you were talking about in Myanmar sounds pretty amazing, and you have produced some music that addresses very delicate policy issues. For instance, your project The Vanishing was concerned with the practice of female feticide in India. That's the abortion of a female fetus outside the legal method. This is an issue that the country found extremely difficult to address and talk about. You've also worked to communicate the stories of asylum seekers in Australia through music. So how is music able to cut through these highly politically charged policy challenges and perhaps overcome some of the barriers to the communication of important issues?
0: It's a funny thing because when we write a piece of music of course we if we're politically motivated or socially motivated we have this goal but when we're making the music we have to be very careful we have to make the music the subject of the music also and and what i mean by that is it's not like having a so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Debate. We have to allow the creative process to flower completely to, to I guess you could say, make something as good as it can be because none of us want to be lectured. And so I think there's, first of all, an inherently fine line between giving people something that inspires them, and then just telling them that they're, they're hopeless, and that, you know, by listening to this music, they'll be better, and no one really wants to hear that message anymore. So that's the danger that I think I'm working with. But with The Vanishing, it was a, this stemmed from a long afternoon conversation with the Uh, an Indian-American sociologist and her husband, who'd been working in this space for for many years, telling me about the fact that they'd had meetings with all the leaders of India, they'd been to all the conferences, they had all the statistics, and they just couldn't reach normal people. And then I thought immediately what this whole podcast is about, that music surely is a way that can do it. So in this project, we did something really interesting. We, We mined the statistics and we looked at the to see the sort of typical person that might undergo this forced feticide. And so we sort of put together all the myriad of reasons that this can be done because these uh, people have done lots of sociological research on the matter. Then we wrote up fictional stories, sort of like idiomatic stories. And then those stories were read by regular Indian women from the country. And then I accompanied it by by traveling India and making found sounds. So actually making the sounds of India because if anyone's been to India... Once you're there, it's like sound is more three-dimensional than sound is in Australia or America or the UK or anywhere like that. You're surrounded by massive amounts of sound. And so from there, finally, the last stage was to do what I normally do, which was to compose and perform some music. So I thought that was a really interesting idea because we had something in the end that was deeply arresting. Like when we played it as an installation, many people were just in tears because the stories are so moving. But at the same time, it wasn't the tears of desperation. It was the idea that I think I can do something about this. And I think that's the role of these things. Now, when we get to the, you know, trying to work with asylum seekers, this is a very delicate situation. I'm involved in a few projects that are trying to do their bit. But I'm also aware that this needs to be led by the people who are directly affected. And so that's really part of what I do. But I did have a really beautiful recent project where I worked with... um, Two lots of people who've been displaced. One was the Guta monks of Tibet, who are Tibetan refugees living in India. And the other one was uh, a dear friend of mine, Narasal Frey, uh, a Baghdadi, very fine uh, josa and violin player who'd left Iraq many years before, basically because his father was a leading dissident. And putting, you know, a really beautiful Iraqi musician and Tibetan musicians together, we'd think would be impossible. But when it came together, something quite remarkable happened. And so that's what I think I can do as a composer. I can enable the art to tell the story rather than just say, look how bad things are. Because we all have that statistical numbness that we we receive from so much information coming our way. But yet music is that notion that every single thing can still matter. And that's what I try and do. And I think it's still possible.
1: In the digital age, music production has been democratized. So anyone with access to a computer can feasibly make music. They have all of the tools that they need. Mm. It's also possible to distribute music to the other side of the world. The technological revolution has changed the way that we make and consume music. Do you think that this has impacted the capacity of music or the way that music reaches a receptive audience and connects them to social issues?
0: I think it's both helped and hindered the process, this notion of being able to do- democratise music and anyone doing it. The reason why it's helped, of course, there's so many people who would normally have to you know, meet someone, an executive, someone from a record company, and there would be an inherent notion of marketability that decides whether a project happens. And this has been the, you know, the state in the arts for hundreds of years. It's not a new thing. But at the same time, it's nice to think that it might be possible to say, that I'll do this thing from the heart and now there's a way to actually get it out there and many people do this. So that's the positive. I think it's just fantastic. But the negative is that things are so much more fragmented. Say, for example, you got something released, you know, 20, 25 years ago on, on a major label and it was political. You knew that there would be sort of a curated message and it would reach, to some extent, the mainstream people. But now we don't really have that guarantee. You can find your sort of little niche and your little tribe through through music, but you may not be able to meet to meet the people who matter. So we haven't got there yet. But I'm convinced that things are changing because the digital methods are, are now starting to be increasingly curated. And this is quite a recent thing. So it used to be that all that stuff was sort of just sitting there and we didn't know what to listen to. But But we could say platforms like Spotify, they have guest DJs now. And so if the right people are doing this curatorial thing, they can find very, very interesting messages and make them sort of available, I guess you'd say, pre-digest the huge amount of music that comes from the ground up and find the cream of that. Now, funnily enough, at the ANU School of Music, we're launching the ANU Music Press in 2019 to do this precise task. So it's something that's really in in my mind. And we want to actually... Of course, look at the music for the sake of music, making music like that. But there's also this idea that some music will have a story to tell and it will actually do these stories in a confronting way and it will be made available for hopefully all parts of society to look at. So that's to me a very exciting thing that we can remake this industry to do this job better as we go.
1: Uh, You mentioned the curation of music on platforms such as Spotify. And I feel like that's a really interesting point because traditionally there have been certain groups of people who've chosen what music enters into the mainstream. So what kind of messages are we seeing enter into the mainstream now?
0: One of the main messages we're we're hearing now is a progressive political stance made by young people, people who are millennials or just older, who are saying I don't believe what I'm being told in the mainstream media and I don't believe that this group of people should be vilified, for example. There was a great example just this morning of our interview on Radio National where two young Zimbabwe musicians actually got to play live on Radio National, and that's because their music had something like 150,000 likes in a day or two. They actually just put something out talking about the demonization of African youth. So many people thought, yes, this is good, this makes a difference. The next day they are on the radio and suddenly, a profound conversation is happening that thinks about deep politics. So this is can, this is something that can happen right now, and should happen right now. But yet, we need to encourage the people in these positions of power to become politically and socially educated. And I, I can't state that enough. It's part of our job to educate both the musicians and the curators as to their role in society, which isn't just entertainment. You know, entertainment is beautiful. It has its role. But all of us have to actually critically look at our society and make it better. That's part of the social contract, I think, in a, in a mixed economy. And once people get that, particularly the ones I get to teach, they have a bit of an epiphany. They realize that there's suddenly not just someone on some fringe of society. There's someone who can actually plan and make a real difference in their career.
1: I think you're absolutely right about that, especially right now. We're facing a critical juncture in global politics and the international order is pretty precarious. We're seeing a resurgence of far-right politics, the emergence of numerous flashpoints in global politics that could ignite conflict, not to mention a global environmental crisis. So where are the protest songs about these issues?
0: The protest songs are in people's hearts primarily, and the reality is that for every single person who writes the so-called real protest song, there's usually a hundred or a thousand who are either silently making that protest or they're doing it without the resources to be heard. So the first thing I'd like to say is that if we're really serious about, you know, having a progressive stance on all the decisions and the difficulties in our world, we have to find, to some extent, the people who are silenced by the political order and enable them to tell their stories. I think that's a very important first thing, and having done that, we owe it if we're in the top three percent of the world, which we are inherently just living in this country, we have to use those resources to to try and do something that is of worth to those who are less fortunate. Whether it's Aboriginal Australia, whether it's those who've come in and are vilified by our system while they're still working out their place in it, whether it's those who are caught in flashpoints between you know larger powers, we do have that responsibility. Thankfully, there are people in most communities, who take it upon themselves to to do something quite radical. Sometimes that radical thing isn't what we would define in the West as a a protest song. That's keeping a traditional culture alive in the face of something like ethnic cleansing. There could be nothing more powerful. For example, um, a colleague of mine from my last university, Catherine Grant, she goes to Cambodia and she looks at the fact that the traditional music of Cambodia almost perished into ground zero with the Khmer Rouge. And a small, small number of people were able to keep this music going. And so now we have in the West the ability to foster this small amount of people and to help them to teach that tradition and to pass it on so that something greater can happen. I think this is very important. And for me, I think there's more opportunities than there are time. If we are in a position of relative power, I'm lucky I have, compared to many people, a lot of power to to be able to exert It's very soft and easy power, so I want to use it carefully and to think, where can I do the greatest good in my limited amount of time? But then there's so many people who haven't thought of how to do it yet. And so making the tools that we talked about earlier available to people can be just absolutely marvelous. And there's projects where, for example, you know, Uh, cameras are given to people who live in slums or people who are working as sex workers to document their lives. I think this type of art that isn't sort of coming from a top down or an institution down is very, very powerful. And so I think that this is something that is worth watching. I think as things develop, we're going to see much more music and also all the other art forms coming from the ground up and it'll have such authenticity that it will move us into action I believe that very strongly. I think things are on the change, but yet we have to work very hard to be a part of that change.
1: What a beautiful outlook on the changing structure of global music. It's been great chatting to you about your work and thank you for giving us such an amazing insight into the relationship between policy and music. I'm sorry to have to end the conversation, but that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Kim. If you've got any comments or feedback on this podcast or any of our other Policy Forum content, we would love to hear from you. You can catch us on Twitter, we Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia Pacific Policy Society, or chuck us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Keep your ears out for our regular podcast, which comes out on Friday, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Brief. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy the dulcet tones of our outro music.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.